Amen. Well, welcome to Lakeside Christian Church this morning. I invite you to grab a Bible in front of you and to open it to the beginning of the Gospel of John, which is the fourth gospel in the New Testament. You'll find it on page 886 if you're using one of the Bibles that's been provided for you. But today we are beginning a five-part series on Easter, which we will celebrate four Sundays from now. We'll have four Sundays and a really good Friday of celebrating Easter. This is the time of the year where the church celebrates what is most important and essential to it. What we anticipate celebrating on Easter Sunday, if it is not true, there is no other Sunday to gather together and to worship Jesus Christ. And so this is the time of the year where we gather together and focus on what is the most important truth of our Christian faith. And as we do this together as people who affirm and believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, other people take notice. And they get in on the celebrating and they produce candies for us to eat and colorful things for us to wear this time of year. And so other people get in on it in the celebration. You also shouldn't be surprised if you see some of our media outlets or newspapers also turning their attention to what it is that Christians claim to believe and celebrate this time of year. And so as we go into this series, we're going to be primarily looking from the Gospel of John. I wanted to highlight for you if in some way or in all the, the combination of jelly beans and church services and nice dresses, you're wondering, what, what are the claims? What are we talking about? I wanted to begin by going over what the five basic claims that we're considering this time of year. And so they'll be above me on a PowerPoint for you to look at just by way of introduction. But here are things that we affirm, that Jesus Christ was a human being who lived approximately 2,000 years ago. He claimed many things about himself, one being that he was God. You'll see two references up there. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus said to somebody who was coming to him for physical healing that he forgave his sins. And everybody standing around in that culture said, wait a minute. Only God can forgive sins. He said, yeah, I know. And what I'm claiming is that I can forgive sins. And then in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus gave a sermon, his most famous sermon, which is called the Sermon on the Mount. At the very end of that sermon, he said to the people listening, on that day, in judgment day, some will say to me this and some will say to me that and I'll divide up this group of people from that group of people. But again, if you were sitting there listening, you're, wait, you're saying you're going to be the person who judges the world. Oh, God's the judge of the world. And he said, yeah, that, that's what I'm saying. In claiming the power to forgive sins and to be the person who will judge the world, Jesus claimed that he was God. Third point, he was tried as a criminal. He was found innocent and he was publicly executed. There should be a breakup in the logic of that line. Usually people that are found innocent aren't then executed. But he was tried as a criminal he was found and declared innocent, and he was publicly executed. The fourth one, after that, he was buried. It's not a huge leap from the third to the fourth one. Publicly executed, buried. And then a few days later, his tomb was found empty. These are the claims. 
And you can affirm all of these things and not be a Christian. You can just accept them as a matter of a fact. There was a person that lived a time ago. He said some things about himself, suffered an unjust death, was buried. No one knows where he is. All of those elements are things that you and I can affirm and not necessarily be Christians. The question is, why was the tomb empty? And there we go to the next slide where we see two large perspectives. The first one being that the disciples of Jesus did one of three things. They helped fake his death. They stole his body and that's why his tomb is empty. Or the whole story was just something they made up. And so you look at the disciples as somehow either faking his death because Jesus just became too popular, there was too much pressure on him, he couldn't go anywhere without people bugging him, and so they sort of faked a death so that he could disappear and live out the rest of his life. Something that uh, many within Islam would believe. They don't believe that Jesus would have been publicly executed, that God would have allowed that to happen to him, and so somehow he would just disappeared and lived out the rest of his life in the wilderness. Or that they themselves, and being unable to, to just handle that their Messiah died, stole his body, and this is actually something that in Matthew 28 is accused of them from the very beginning. The Jews of the day that did not like Jesus, the moment the tomb was empty, began making this accusation of the disciples, that this is what they did. Or they made up the whole thing. But we can't explain that we are here today worshiping Jesus, opening up our scriptures, apart from the fact that somebody believed in him. And so even if we don't think those claims are true, we know that there was somebody who believed in it, taught it, affirmed it, and spread it to others. The other option is that the tomb of Jesus is empty because he resurrected from the dead. And by resurrecting from the dead, he proved the accuracy of his claims and the integrity of his character. And so those who believed that he rose again from the dead, that he was now alive and that's why the tomb was empty, then looked back on all the teachings that he gave and said, this is why we believe them to be true. He said that he could forgive sins and now that we see him alive again after his death, we believe what he said. He said that he will come and judge the entire world and now that we see him alive again after he died, we believe his claims. And as those people gathered together and began worshiping this Jesus, communities formed and churches developed and they went then to the ends of the earth telling people this good news, that the tomb was empty because Jesus is alive. And that's what we believe as Christians, that it wasn't the disciples stealing a body or making up a story And so when we actually come to the Gospels, if you've never read through them, read through them and you'll see the disciples again and again try to make the point that they did not believe until they saw him. That they themselves looked for some other explanation until they encountered him after his death. And so as we go into this series, what we talk about at resurrection is life, his life and his resurrected life, and how that impacts our lives. 
the life that he intends for us to now have and to have forever with him. But the resurrection and therefore all of the Christian faith is about life and how to have it. And it's the theme, one of the themes of John's gospel. It's in John's gospel that we hear Jesus say, I've come that you may have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And so when we now turn to the first chapter of John's gospel, we're reading one of these disciples who has seen the risen Lord and is now looking back in his life and saying everything he claimed about himself is true. And so he wants to remind you and I about the things that he claimed. And so we're going to read the first 18 verses of chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become Children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. As we look at this passage today, we're going to break it up much like a good story is broken up. There's a a very good beginning, and then a strange development, and then an open resolution. We've got a good beginning, a strange development, and then an open resolution. But a good beginning, our passage says, in the beginning. How something starts sets the pattern for us in our expectations of what we will next encounter. For example, if you were to grab a piece of paper and on top of it, it were to say, dear so-and-so, you would begin to expect right away a letter to follow. If I were to say, once upon a time, you'd expect a story to follow. 
how it begins kind of sets in your mind and ours expectations of what is coming. For John's audience, when he says, in the beginning, their minds go back to Genesis chapter 1, where the very first verse in our Bibles opens, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so as they hear this phrase, in the beginning, John's not just talking about the beginning of a life here on earth. He's going all the way back to the beginning, the beginning, the beginning of beginnings, if you will. And he makes this claim that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. We have to unpack this for a moment. The word was with God. When you're with someone, there's a distinguishing that's being made and there's a relationship that's being identified. If you're with me or I'm with you, we are together. There's a a distinguishing between two things and yet a relationship that exists between them. And then this very next phrase, and the word was God. And we step back and say, John, how can something or someone be with God and was God? Because when you say that the word was God, that gives a sense of being inseparable, unified. You You can't refer to the one without the other. And here's the beginning of a Christian understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity, that Jesus, the word, was with God from the beginning, from the very, very beginning. The word had no beginning. The word was there from the beginning. And yet this word, which is in some way able to be distinguished from God, is yet inseparable from him in that he is God. And he goes on to say, just in case we're wondering what period he's talking about in verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. This This sense of together with, in relationship, and in community, and yet inseparable, one and the same. Okay, well then we just, we keep reading to look at what he's describing. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so we get this positive statement, and then this negative statement, both affirming that this word who was with God created everything that is. Look, verse 3, all things were made through him. That's the positive statement. And without him was not anything made that was made. The word made everything. And it doesn't say the word made everything except himself as if he's something that's made. No, It puts it in both ways. Nothing was made without him, and he made everything. And so again, he must exist and be before everything, which is where we get this very short phrase, but is packed with meaning in verse 4, in him was life. In him was life. When we read that, it tells us that this word is independent and sovereign. Those are two words, if you are writing things down, that you can write down. 
Jesus, the word, is independent. Now, you and I oftentimes are, are trained to think of ourselves as independent or self-sufficient. You know, if, if you have a job and you can, you know, go to the grocery store and pay your own bills, we often think of that as being self-sufficient. But the reality is the wealthiest among us is entirely dependent. We are not independent people. And what I mean is you and I couldn't last more than three days without water. For our life to continue... We need something outside of ourselves to keep us going. We need food. We need water. If we have food and water but we don't have adequate shelter, something else could come up that throws us off. But our lives are dependent upon other things to keep going. Now the question is whether or not we can access those things through our own resources or through the help of other people However we get them, each and every one of us are dependent beings. We are creatures. And if we close our mouths and don't breathe for a certain period of time, and it wouldn't take very long, we could endure not having any liquid for the the entirety of this service. You'll be fine. You won't pass out if you don't go get a cup of water. You're welcome to get a cup of water if you ever need one, but you won't need it. But if I challenge you to hold your breath until this service is done, you wouldn't make it. It's going to be a shorter sermon, but not that short. You would not make it if you held your breath. You need something to keep on going. So when this says, in him was life, it's saying that there is something about Jesus' life that's very, very different than yours and mine. His is an independent life. It is not dependent upon anything else. It is the ultimate self-sufficiency. Even scientists have done experiments. There's two large categories when you talk about theories of origin and where does life come from. And one is called biogenesis, and the basic idea is life comes from life. There's little people because there was big people who had little people. And there's little animals because there were big animals that had little animals. And there's flowers that are coming up right now because there was flowers before the snow came in the wintertime. But the life that we see now comes from other life. And so some, uncomfortable with that, would imply in their own theory, said, well, maybe things just happen spontaneously. And the theory that they developed a spontaneous generation. And said, how do we test this? Can we If we took like a a flask with water and and eliminated all life in it, we killed everything that was in it, and wait around for a couple days, would, would life just spontaneously appear? Not from another living organism. And test after test, proven again, no, it does not. Life comes from life. And so whether you're a creationist or an evolutionist or a creative evolutionist, whatever you are, the observable phenomena for all of us is that life comes from life. That poses the question, where does life come from? And to answer that, you're out of the realm of science, you're in the realm of philosophy, and you have to say, well, where does, where does it come from? If we simply say it always comes from other life, we just complicate the issue by infinity. And so most major schools of philosophy and religion say there has to be a life that doesn't come from another life, that that has life within and of itself, and that can give life to us and to others. And here, John is making the claim that the word that was with God and was God is that 
life, completely independent and self-sufficient, and the maker and giver of all other life. And in that, to say that he is entirely independent, and therefore one of the theological terms that we use is eternal. That's what eternal means. There's no birthday we celebrate, and there's no death date we'll ever see in God. He's eternal because he has life in himself. He can't hold his breath. You can't cut off water from him or deny him food. He is life and will continue to have life no matter what happens to you and to me. And then one of the other things that John is challenging in his own day by claiming his total and unique independence is to say that he's also sovereign. He has the ultimate authority. It would have been popular in that day to think of many gods that existed out there and that were equally powerful, equally having life within them, and that they were fighting against one another. And the question was just which god was going to win. And so there were multiple gods competing with one another. And John's saying there's only one god. And everything that exists, exists under the sovereignty of that one god. And so still within a Christian worldview, there are bad things, there's bad angels, there's bad people, there's a devil. But all of that exists under the sovereignty of the only one who has life within himself. There is nothing else in all of creation that has life within him or herself. And so he exalts the word to say that everything that was made And not anything that was made was made apart from him. And so it's a statement about the ultimate self-sufficiency and the ultimate authority that the word has within and of himself. This is who we're talking about. He says all of that to then come to us and say, and this word... that has no beginning, that has all the creative power that, that we see, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That this one who stands supreme over all, above it all, came in flesh And dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, and in his glory we've seen him full of grace and truth. What a a beginning to a story. The maker of all that is, the sovereign over all, the one that was totally independent and self-sufficient, not in need of us for his own life, came and dwelt among us to show us glory, grace, and truth. And then there's this strange development that we see in verse 10. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And if we just step back, we say, what? Why would, if the one who made everything that there is, has life within himself, 
power and beauty, if he came full of glory, grace, and truth, why would, why would someone not want to receive him? Why would someone not want to know him? Why would, why would someone choose to reject him? And what we start to learn is something that is true, not about God, but about you and me. Would we be open to receiving the coming of the word made flesh? Would we be open and receptive and desiring to have a relationship with him if he were to come down to us? That's a question that each and every one of us have to answer. But clearly there were some people who were unwilling to do that. Because whenever you talk about someone who has independence and has authority, even if you can believe that those things are true and that he has them, if you and I are people that want our own authority and we want to have our own independence, then we will reject him, not because we can't believe him, but because we won't believe him. You and I, if what we desire is our own authority and our own independence, simply because we meet his authority and independence, doesn't mean we'll receive it. And so if our desire and approach is not to learn about the God who is and how we can know him, but to be God's ourselves then we will not be open to receiving him and embracing him and submitting to him. And so that's one of the first hurdles that each and every one of us has to cross over. Are we open to confronting and experiencing the independent and sovereign God as he is? If in so doing, we have to admit that we are not. We have to acknowledge that we are not on the throne, that our lives are not our own. Our destinies are not our own. Everything about us is understood in relationship and connection to him. And when you realize that that is one of the main things at play, our own selfishness and hunger for authority, it makes sense in a very, very sad and tragic way that even though he comes to give us glory, grace, and truth, we are oftentimes unwilling to embrace it. As some have said, we would rather have a hell where we are in charge than a heaven where we are not. We'd rather have the hell of our own choosing than the heaven of another sovereign. Because there is something inside of us that craves its own glory, its own authority, its own power. And so there 
Although there's this good beginning, there's this amazing story of the God who has come to be among us, we have to look hard into our own lives and ask if we're open to receiving that. But here he gives a very sure promise in verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so he makes clear that he has come And while there's something in us that does fight against him, that does not want to acknowledge him, the invitation is open to any one of us who will receive him. He gives the right for you and for me to become his children. And so while there's this strange development of our own hearts, there's this sure promise that you and I Though we are totally dependent, though there's something in us that fights against him, if we are willing to receive him, it doesn't matter what situation we were born into, verse 13. It does not matter what your background was or mine. It doesn't matter who your mom or dad were or whether or not you know your mom and dad. You can receive and become a child of God no matter what your birth is no matter what your heritage or history was, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, no matter what your friends are telling you to do, no matter what anybody around you is encouraging you or discouraging you to do, you and I, no one else able to prevent us, can receive what he has said, can receive him and become children of God. And then all of these things that are described in verses 14 on can become ours. We can know him and and, and begin to understand him as the, the father and the son who's full of grace and truth, who has come not to beat up on us but to bring light to us, who has come not to kill our joy but to give us life who has come from all of his fullness in verse 16 so that we could have grace Upon grace, mercy upon mercy, love upon love. It is the purpose of God the Father through his Son to pour out all of his grace and truth and blessing upon us. And that's what we celebrate this Easter season. That though the law was given through Moses, grace and truth have come to you and to me through Jesus Christ. Do you Believe that about the God who made you and formed you. That as he looks upon you, it's his desire not to beat up upon you, not to punish you, but to give life to you, to offer grace to you, to speak truth into your heart. This is, for John, what has come to overwhelm him. And then for us, it's an open resolution. The ending is yet to be determined. Our passage says, in the beginning was the word. And the question for us is, in the end, where will we be? In the beginning, the word was with God. In the end, will we be with him? In him was life. The question for us is, is his life in us. 
In him was life. Is his life in us? But if you turn in conclusion to the 20th chapter of this gospel, this is everything that John is working to do for you and for me. He doesn't hide the purpose of why he's writing this gospel that we will now consider for weeks in a row. He says on page 907 in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, look, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you who are completely independent and self-sufficient, you who are the sovereign maker of each and every one of our lives, that you have come to us to share that life with us. Father, we thank you that no matter what situation we were born into, no matter what our background is, and no matter what our current situation is, we thank you that we can become your children, that we can experience your life in us. Father, for anyone here who's not received that, who's not embraced that, we pray that you would make this morning a time of receiving the life that you offer. And Father, for those of us who who believe this truth, who claim to follow you, we pray that you would help us to move forward, not trusting in ourselves, not trusting in our authority, but entirely trusting and dependent upon the life that you live through us. Father, we pray for this as a church family. We pray that you would make Lakeside a place where your life is lived out through your people so that others would come to know you and experience life in your name. Amen.